In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Eternal rest grant unto Pope Benedict XVI, O Lord, and let perpetual light shine upon him. May his soul and the souls of all the faithful departed through the mercy of God rest in peace. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. No doubt you have heard a great deal in the last few days uh, regarding Joseph Ratzinger slash Benedict XVI. And I was happy to be invited by uh, Terry Barber to join him and Jesse Romero for a special edition of the Terry and Jesse show just this past Monday. Um, I think a lot of edifying things were said. We had uh, other um, hosts and friends of the Apostolate calling in. And, um, you know, I think probably a number of things were said that you're not going to hear elsewhere. So if you haven't heard it, I recommend that you go to vmpr.org or or, um, go to the smartphone app. And listen to the Terry and Jesse show from last Monday, the special edition on Benedict XVI. And uh, today I want to kind of continue in that vein, maybe share some um, lesser-known facts and some personal insights regarding Benedict XVI. And then later on we're going to look at the Feast of the Holy Name of Jesus, which is usually celebrated on January 2. Also, perhaps the most popular New Year's resolution for Catholic Christians. We're going to talk about that and uh, lots more. It's all coming up later in the program. But uh, last Saturday, I received a text about 6 in the morning um, with a prayer for the soul of Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI that we recited at the beginning of the show. And I suspect I will always remember where I was when I got the news, just uh, the same as I'll always remember when I heard the news uh, that uh, regarding his elevation to the papal throne back in 2005. I was at work uh, at uh, St. Joseph Communications, and... Um, everybody was, we were kind of listening to EWTN and, uh, waiting for the announcement. And, um, when we got the news, uh, there, there was much rejoicing, we <laughs> put it that way. And as a medievalist, uh, personally, my, my first thought was to the prophecies of St. Malachi, you know, way back in the 12th century, he styled the 264th successor of St. Peter as Gloria Olivae, which is Latin for the glory of the olive. And in consequence, uh, a great number of commentators over the centuries had assumed that this pope would be a member of the Benedictine order, because they're known as the Olivations. And um, I was pondering how Cardinal Ratzinger might fit in uh, to this prophecy when it was announced that he had taken the name Benedict. And I literally got goosebumps, and I immediately got on the phone to my wife Betty to share the news and to share my reaction. St. Benedict... The glory of the olive is the patron saint of Europe. And Pope Benedict clearly desired for the Catholic Church to maintain a a voice and a presence in the public square of the culture formerly known as Christendom. And he saw at the heart of all reform continuity with the past that can never be broken, or at least not without dire consequences. And I dare say consequences that are unfolding as we speak. I also remember that not long after his election... Uh, I, I was attending the speaker dinner for the 2005 National Catholic Family Conference in Anaheim here, and Scott Hahn shared how uh, when Ratzinger got elected Pope, many of his colleagues called to tell him, congratulations, Scott, your guy got in, your man got in. And, uh, and you know, we got a chuckle over it, but the point is that he'd been promoting the biblical theology of Professor Joseph Ratzinger, you know, um, for many, many years. In fact, If it hadn't been for the theological works of Professor Ratzinger, a certain young Presbyterian minister, 
would likely never have become Catholic in the first place. And, you know, uh, Dr. Hahn readily admits that his work is profoundly influenced by the theology of Joseph Ratzinger. Naturally, the, uh, the great milestone of Benedict's papacy, the thing that he will be always remembered for, was the liberation of the traditional Latin Mass. And his official proclamation, lest we forget that it was never and can never be abrogated. Uh, that and his insistence on the um, quote-unquote hermeneutic of continuity versus the hermeneutic of rupture. Uh, you know, in hermeneutic, as we've spoken of often, it's an interpretational key. And in this instance, in the face of those who treat Vatican II as a rupture with the past, as a clean break with tradition, as a new start from zero, those are all Ratzinger's terms, by the way, not mine. In the face of this interpretation, he proposed the hermeneutic of continuity that sees Vatican II for what it was, a merely pastoral council. And again, the word merely is Benedict's word, not mine. And so it's for us to interpret Vatican II in the light of the 2,000 years of tradition that preceded it, rather than reinterpreting the 2,000 years of tradition in the light of Vatican II. You know, as, as prefect for the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith under John Paul II, and then as Pope, he was bold to proclaim the truth about a host of topics in season and out of season, and it got him hot water. You know, from abortion to the death penalty to Islam to the liturgy to no salvation outside the church. You know, and we'll be talking about some of that in the weeks ahead, uh, I suspect, especially some new quotes I've found regarding the celebration of the traditional Mass. But in the last few days, I had the occasion to learn a number of things about uh, Pope Benedict that I did not know before. You know, for example, I think most people know that he was a polyglot and he spoke, you know, several languages fluent in German, English, Italian, French, Spanish, Latin, uh, had a working knowledge of, of Portuguese, and uh, he was fond of cats, apparently. He was a classically trained musician, loved to uh, play the works of Mozart on the piano, which he continued to do through his ecclesial career. Uh, but one thing I didn't know is that Benedict XVI had a pilot's license, and he used to uh, fly his helicopter from the Vatican to the papal residence at Castle. Gandolfo, you know, the summer residence. Um, but even though he had a pilot's license, um, he didn't have a driver's license because like many Europeans, he never learned how to drive a car. Now, that was interesting. And you probably also know that it's mandatory for bishops to tender their resignation at the age of 75. But um, maybe you didn't know that Cardinal Ratzinger had repeatedly asked Pope John Paul II for permission to retire from his work as the prefect of the CDF. Um, he expressed his desire to become a librarian or, or some other kind of slower-paced position that would give him the opportunity to study and to write. And, of course, John Paul II refused his request. He was uh, too uh, valuable as the predict for the CDF, and he would not accept his resignation even when he reached the mandatory uh, retirement age of 75. And it was three years later, at the age of 78, that he was elevated to the papal throne. He, uh, Benedict XVI is the latest of six popes who have resigned to the papacy. It's funny, when he did it, you know, there was headline news, you know, it's the first time in history a pope resigns. Well, apparently not. It's, something's happened a half dozen times. But he is most certainly the first to be called Pope Emeritus, which is a designation that did not exist prior to uh, his stepping down. And he is the first to have remained in residence at the Vatican. He is the first whose body uh, will lie in state. And, and get a, a papal funeral. 
because, you know, as everybody has made clear, he's not Pope anymore, but he was Pope Emeritus. It's also interesting, I think a lot of people thought that, uh, you know, talked about Benedict and some of the remarks he made that he was uh, dividing the papacy into, a you know, like a Martha and Mary situation where Francis is the active pope and he's the contemplative pope or whatever, and that's why he stayed at the Vatican. Actually, he didn't want to stay at the Vatican. He wanted to go home to Bavaria and study and write like he had wanted to all along. But um, it was um, the powers that be who decided that he should remain, um, for lack of a better term, a prisoner in the Vatican. Now, there was a reflection. I've read a lot of stuff and heard a lot of stuff, as I'm sure you have as well, in the last few days. But there was a reflection written by the prior of St. Michael's Abbey down in Silverado. And he said that Benedict XVI's legacy will be more than his brilliant theological mind or his steadfast defense of tradition uh, and truth. Rather, he says, the thing that marks this great pontiff's legacy, in my mind, is his insistence that now more than ever, we need to be joyful. Now, last week, I quoted St. Paul to the effect that uh, we must rejoice always. And I mentioned that the command to be not afraid, fear not, you know, words to that effect, appear in the Bible some 365 times. But the command to rejoice uh, more than twice as that, twice as many as that, uh, over 800 times. So, Joseph Ratzinger observed that that something I constantly notice is that unembarrassed joy has become rarer. People are embarrassed to be joyful. He says, joy today is increasingly saddled with moral and ideological burdens, so to speak. And Father Pryor commented on a... uh, interview that Cardinal Ratzinger gave in 1997 addressing the challenges that face the church in our postmodern age. And during the interview, he returned to this idea of unembarrassed joy and uh, having the courage to rejoice. This is a quote, having the courage to rejoice, which in turn becomes commitment to making sure that other people too can rejoice and receive good news. In Bavaria, when the news came out that uh, he had passed away, the church bells rang for over an hour. And I believe, personally, that Benedict XVI's lasting legacy will be for us to remember the things that he emphasized most. He was a biblical scholar and reminded us that truth is real because the Word of God isn't just a book but a person. Jesus, who is the way and the truth and the life, through his liturgies, the way he celebrated the Novus Ordo liturgy. He reminded us uh, that, and you know, especially through his liberation of the traditional Mass, he reminded us that beauty is powerful and that, and that even the fall can't change the fact that life is fundamentally good. At every step in the creation, God looks at what he's created and said, you know, and, and it was good. And we've been redeemed precisely because we are redeemable. I'll share this one quote. He said, Know that God will never abandon you. Turn your eyes to him often. He gave his life for you on the cross because he loves you. Contemplation of this great love brings a hope and joy to hearts that nothing can destroy. Christians can never be sad, for they have met Christ who gave his life for them. And that's no nonsense. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to No-Nonsense Catholic. I hope you're enjoying your Christmas season, and uh, since I failed to do it in the first segment, I will now wish you a very blessed and happy New Year. Now, um, every year, people, millions of people, make New Year's resolutions. Among the most popular are losing weight, uh, regular exercise to stop smoking or drinking. Um, These are the typical ones. I made my first ever uh, New Year's resolution last year, uh, when I resolved to stop being nice. <laughs> it's worked out pretty well, but it's actually a little harder than I thought it would be. And, uh, and, and perhaps I should clarify, when I say that I stopped being nice, uh, the first thing we should ask is, what does it mean to be nice? And uh, being nice means to avoid conflict or controversy. And consequently, it's not considered nice to you know, discuss religion or politics um, in, in company, right? If, if, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. That's the way I was raised. But it turns out that the word nice actually comes from a Latin word that means ignorant. And by the 13th century, being nice had taken on the connotation of not merely being ignorant, but, but foolish. And why is that? Well, because being nice means going out of your way not to offend anyone, but without regard to the truth without regard to what is right or wrong. And now, you know, today our society is so polarized and people are so contentious that I'm sure that there's plenty of folks who long for the days when, you know, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. But the real problem is that being nice is not a Christian virtue. Kindness is a virtue. Meekness is a virtue. Justice, prudence, temperance, fortitude, these are Christian virtues, but not niceness. You can read the Bible till your eyes bleed and you will never see the words, thou shalt be nice, or blessed are the nice. And, and the proof that being nice is not a virtue is easily illustrated by the fact that the powers of darkness understand that if the primary goal of the people and institutions of a society is never to offend anyone, then all it takes to take down that society is to claim to be offended. The only thing necessary to occupy the the quote-unquote moral high ground is to play the victim, no matter how trivial or ridiculous or reposed to reality the alleged offense. And and that's why I resolved to stop being nice. And that doesn't mean I'm going to be purposely provocative or (laughs) go out of my way to offend people. I hope to increase in um, genuine virtues, kindness and meekness, among others. And when I say I've, I've resolved to stop being nice, it just means that when I encounter people to, who claim to be offended by reality, okay, that is by, by the, the true nature of things as ordained by God, if people are offended by common sense or rational thought, if people are offended by things that are good and true and beautiful, and I dare say normal, well then, they're the ones with the problem. They're the ones who need to be educated. They're the ones who need to amend their lives. And as I said a year ago, maybe a nice person wouldn't say that, but I believe that a holy person would. And, and that's no nonsense. But we were talking about these common New Year's resolutions, uh, you know, lose weight, quit smoking, which is to say to overcome some bad habit, to overcome some vice. And that's a good thing. Thomas Akempis in The Imitation of Christ, he said, if every year we rooted out one vice, we would soon become per- perfect. But uh, many people, rather than give up some bad practice, 
resolve to embrace some good practice. And that's what we want to talk about a little bit here. Uh, Among Catholics, that would include, you know, I'm going to start praying the rosary every day, or I'm going to go to daily mass. I'm going to read the Bible every day. And, And that may be the most popular Christian, you know, New Year's resolution. I'm going to read the Bible. After all, who among us has never said, this is the year I read the whole Bible cover to cover? You know, only to get bogged down in the middle of Leviticus and abandon their good resolution like the 90 plus percents of all New Year's resolutions that get abandoned. Now, now I have read the whole Bible and parts of it many, many times. And unlike most people, I can prove it. Uh, last year, I recorded the entire Bible, the Bible in a year for the Augustine Institute uh, Amen smartphone app. And the text was uh, Augustine Institute's specially printed Bible in a year Bible that arranges the whole of Scripture into 365 daily readings. And, and there's, that's just one of many uh, Bible in a year Bibles that are arranged to, to be read that way. But, you know, you don't have to be that ambitious. For one thing, with, with, the, with that app, all you have to do is listen every day and, and to, you know, to hear the entire Bible in a year. But there's other approaches. There's the daily mass readings, if you want to read the Bible every day. There are many books with a Bible quote for every day. In fact, Catholic Book Publishing Company has a whole series of books. Every day is a gift. Bible day by day, Mary day by day, day by day with the saints, and so on. There's a whole shelf full of them. Um, and, and there's no shortage of programs that encourage daily Bible reading. But uh, over the years... Uh, Father Larry Richards, you've probably heard of him, you may know him. He's a, a Catholic priest who's become a fixture of Catholic men's conferences and Catholic men's spiritual retreats. And he especially, <laughs> rented lips, I'm sorry, he especially encourages Catholic men to read the Bible every day, morning and evening. And he coined the motto, no Bible, no breakfast, no Bible, no bed, right, as a, as a reminder. Now, that calls to mind for me my own relationship with the Liturgy of the Hours, formerly known as the Divine Office. Of course, with the Office, the motto would be no Bible, no breakfast, no Bible, no elevensies, no Bible, no luncheon, no Bible, no afternoon tea, no Bible, no supper, no Bible, no nightcap, no Bible, no midnight snack. Uh, and, you know, it's a lot of Bible every day. And the Liturgy of the Hours revolves mainly around the Psalter, the Book of Psalms, plus biblical canticles and daily scripture readings, you know, scripture readings throughout the day, in fact. And, and there's seven canonical hours because the office was patterned after a military watch. Uh, for example, on the city walls of Rome or Jerusalem or the battlements of a medieval castle, there would be a guard, and the guard would change every three hours around the clock. And the liturgical hours follow that same pattern. You have matins at midnight. Matins literally means in the morning because the day begins at midnight. Then lauds, which means praises at first light or, you know, around three o'clock in the morning. Prime, which means first, is at 6 a.m. because that's the first hour of full daylight. And then three hours later, we have terse at three, uh, or uh, terse at uh, 9 a.m. Terse meaning third, right, the third hour. And then sext, which means six at 12 noon. Known meaning nine at 3 p.m. And then you have vespers, which means evening at 6 p.m., and then Compline, uh, which means complete because it's the last liturgical hour of the day at 9 p.m. And then the whole cycle starts over at midnight. Now, 
If you're following closely, you might have noticed that I just rehearsed eight liturgical hours and not seven. Now that's because of the changes after Vatican II. Before Vatican II, the Divine Office included all 150 psalms in each week, uh, plus all the other biblical readings and the daily readings from the Roman Martyrology. After Vatican II, the Liturgy of the Hours was rearranged into a four-week cycle of the Psalter. Lauds was moved from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., and the Hour of Prime was suppressed. So it's less of a challenge, time-wise, to say all the prayers and read all the readings. And even back in the Middle Ages, uh, monasteries would accommodate the hours to better fit the life of the community. Uh, In many places, for instance, lauds would be sung immediately following matins, so the monks didn't have to rise again at 3 a.m., but could sleep until 6. Naturally, they still were getting up at midnight, but uh, that that was pretty common for medieval Europeans, actually. Uh, For one thing, people generally went to bed with the chickens, as my old pop used to say, uh, in other words, shortly after dark. But it was customary for regular folks, as well as, the, you know, the, the monks, to wake at midnight and be up for an hour or so and then go back to sleep until daybreak. In fact, medieval writers uh, speak in terms of first sleep and second sleep. For example, um, this is referred to in the Squire's Tale of Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. And I read an article recently in Medieval Magazine that uh, says uh, the, the research suggests that the first sleep was a common cultural division of the night, and uh, as was the hour halfway uh, through first sleep, the hour halfway through sleep. Now, if you went to bed at, you know, in wintertime, you go to bed at sundown or, you know, some, somewhere after 6 o'clock, um, you might wake up at 9 in the middle of that first sleep, most likely because that's when the bells rang for, uh, for Compline. But, you know, you'd turn back over and, and go to sleep until the bells ring for matins at midnight. Uh, and so what did people do between first and second sleep? Well, the priests and religious, as we've already established, prayed the office. Common folks uh, would typically pray as well. Those uh, people with books would read um, or study. Uh, it's, it's typical to have a light snack. One French physician, Laurent Jobert, advised that husbands and wives perform the marital act between first and second sleep because he said they have more enjoyment and, quote-unquote, do it better at this time. So that's what the doctor says. Uh, Priests who offered the daily mass uh, and therefore communicated each day were required to fast from midnight, hence the origin of the midnight snack. Uh, But, of course, the same holds for lay people who... Uh, plan to receive communion at a Sunday or Holy Day Mass. And uh, plus the fact that in medieval Christendom, people didn't customarily eat a large morning meal. You know, most folks would, quote-unquote, break their fast with a, a mug of beer or ale, maybe some bread and cheese, which is a swell way to break your fast, <laughs> in my humble opinion. Um, but, but the big meal of the day wasn't breakfast or, or dinner, you know, or supper time. It was, it was called dinner, but it was eaten at, at midday at 12 p.m., and then in the evening after the day's work, you would have a lighter supper, right, some fruit and bread and cheese, that kind of thing. But, but like the combination of the hours of uh, matins and lauds, some of the religious communities, in order to better accommodate their prayer and work, would sing the hours of sext and known, which is the 12 p.m. and 3 p.m. hour, both at midday. Hence, 12 p.m. came to be known as noon, 
and now you know. Uh, the point is that the modern liturgy of the hours is not the first time that the Psalter was accommodated to be more suitable to the circumstances. You know, although <laughs> trading that uh, week-long cycle of psalms for a four-week cycle caused some critics to refer to the new arrangement as the liturgy of the minutes, you know, but the fact remains that stopping uh, at, at intervals all throughout the day to pray and read the scriptures remains a challenge. And I've been praying in the office uh, uh, in some form for many years. Being a traditional Catholic, I am attracted to the traditional office, but for me it's never worked out for long. I mean, if even medieval monks had to accommodate the office to fit their schedules, you know, you imagine a, a modern Catholic layman with a wife and, and, and a career and, and six kids. You know, and of course, beside that, my definition of a traditional Catholic isn't somebody that, that only uses the old uh, Latin liturgies, only goes to the old Mass, but as any Catholic who can say the act of faith and really mean it. And that's no nonsense. So can we come back and finish up uh, talking about the uh, resolution to read the Bible, and we're going to talk about the Feast of the Holy Name of Jesus. And we've also got uh, some events coming up uh, just later this month and uh, in the springtime. So we'll talk about all that when we come back with lots more New Nonsense Catholic here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic, talking about the the common Christian resolution to read the Bible in the new year, to read the Bible every day. And, you know, how you don't have to read the entire Bible uh, cover to cover in a year to to uh, uh, effectively encounter the Bible every day. We have the readings from the Mass, and uh, we have the, the Liturgy of the Hours, and... Um, there are various apps. If you do want to do the uh, the Bible in a year, there are Bibles that are specially um, printed for that purpose. Or like I mentioned on the Amen app from Augustine Institute, it's a free smartphone app. You can listen to yours truly, read the entire Bible, every blessed word of it out loud uh, day to day for over 365 days and, and encounter the entire Bible that way. Or there's a number of... Um, daily devotionals online and via smartphone apps and, and the, like I mentioned, that series of books from Catholic Book Publishing Company where you get a short uh, passage of Scripture, perhaps a little reflection and a prayer, and that's a really effective way to encounter the Bible every day. The point is the consistency. I know that, uh, you know, or I should say even though I know that I do much better spiritually, emotionally, even physically when I'm fa- uh, you know, faithful to that daily recitation of the, of the Liturgy of the Hours, all it takes is for me to miss a day or two, and for whatever reason, it is like to, you know, to get back into the habit. It, it's like pulling teeth, you know, to get back into that routine. As our good Lord uh, told Peter, James, and John in the Garden of Gethsemane, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak, and that's no nonsense. So a little later on the program, we're going to talk about some strategies for uh, making resolutions and keeping them. And some good thing resolutions that can help you grow in virtue. But uh, today I wanted to bring up the Feast of the Holy Name of Jesus. Um, on the 1st of January, in the extraordinary form, we celebrated what's called the Feast of the Circumcision of Our Lord. And in the Bible reading, the Gospel reading, it said, After eight days the child was circumcised and his name was called Jesus. Yeah, and we, we celebrate that on the 1st of January, which is the octave of Christmas Day. 
So eight days after he was born, he was circumcised, which is the way they used to do it, you know, the, the Jews in those days. Um, now, the, the, Nord, pardon me, the Novus Order refers to that feast now as the Solemnity of Mary, Mother of God. Uh, but the Gospel is still about that visit of the shepherds to the manger, and that after eight days, our Lord was circumcised. And the, the question is, why would Jesus subject himself to circumcision? He was without sin, obviously, so he had no need of circumcision. But he submitted to that right for a number of reasons. One, according to the prophecies, the uh, Redeemer would be a true Israelite and a true son of Abraham. In order to be recognized as such, he had to be circumcised. Number two, by his incarnation, our Lord took upon himself the sins of mankind so as to make satisfaction for them. And for this purpose, he shed his precious blood for the first time in his circumcision and showed us that he was come to redeem us by his blood. Therefore, the name of Jesus, or Savior, was given at his circumcision. Uh, Number three, by voluntarily obeying the law and submitting himself to the right of circumcision, he wished to give us an example of obedience to the divine law. Uh, The name of Jesus is the sweetest of all names, for if that blessed name did not exist, neither would there exist for us pardon or grace or eternal happiness. It's uh, the object of our faith, our hope, and our love. Moreover, the name of Jesus testifies to the divine nature of the Redeemer, because it means not only Savior, but divine Savior. The Hebrew Yeshua, literally Yahweh, saves. And it says to us, God is our salvation. God is our deliverance. And so St. Paul writes in Colossians, in the, or Philippians rather, in the name of Jesus, every nation... Let me slow down. In the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow of those that are in heaven, on earth, or under the earth. And whatsoever you do in word or in work, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father by him. Devotion to the holy name of Jesus is one of the oldest, therefore, and simplest of all devotions. And it was promoted back in the 12th century by my favorite saint, the great doctor of the church, Bernard of Clairvaux. And uh, Father Paul O'Sullivan, following in his footsteps, wrote a popular booklet about it that you can still get from Tan Books, which is called The Wonders of the Holy Name. And so I just, uh, I, I like to read from it now. He said, This divine name is in truth a mine of riches. It is the fount of the highest holiness and the secret of the greatest happiness that a man can hope to enjoy on this earth. It is so powerful, so certain, that it never fails to produce in our souls the most wonderful results. It consoles the saddest heart and makes the weakest sinner strong. It obtains for us all kinds of favors and graces, spiritual and temporal. Two things we must do. First of all, we must understand clearly the meaning and value of the name of Jesus. Secondly, we must get into the habit of saying it devoutly. There's that word habit again. Frequently, hundreds and hundreds of times every day, for far from being a burden, he said, this will be an immense joy and consolation. And we were talking about these these short devotions, what could be shorter than the holy name of Jesus. St. Louis de Montfort says, what does the name of Jesus, the proper name of the incarnate wisdom, signify to us, if not ardent charity, infinite love, and engaging gentleness? The distinctive characteristic of Jesus, the Savior of the world, is to love and save men. No song is sweeter, no voice more pleasing, no thought more appealing than Jesus, Son of God. How sweet the name of Jesus sounds in the ear and the heart of a chosen soul. Sweet as honey to his lips, 
a delightful melody to the ears, a thrilling joy to the heart. And then the third point he makes is that the holy name of Jesus is indulgenced. You know, that the ejaculation Jesus is an indulgenced prayer. And therefore you can gain countless blessings for the holy souls by repeating the holy name of Jesus. St. Paul tells us that Jesus merited the name Jesus by his passion and death. So each time we say Jesus, let us clearly wish to offer to God all the masses being said all over the world for all our intentions. And in that way, have a share in all those masses. I love that, that wonderful economy that, uh, you know, the saints and the spiritual writers of days gone by, uh, it was so, uh, they were so aware of it. It was so real to them. The very idea that there are thousands of masses being said across the world and through your intention and the prayer, the simple prayer, Jesus, that you could participate in the graces of all those masses. Each time we say the name of Jesus in a worthy manner, we gain a partial indulgence, which we can apply to ourselves or to the souls in purgatory, and thus relieving and uh, liberating many of these holy souls from their awful pains. That was you know, one of a, a great point of uh, Father O'Sullivan's ministry was the devotion to the holy souls, because as he said, they, when you know, we pray for the holy souls, they become our best friends. And they pray for us with an incredible fervor, and most especially when they are loosed from their bonds and become the saints in heaven. He says, another easy and efficacious way is the constant repetition of short indulgenced prayers, applying an indulgence to the souls in purgatory. Many people have the custom of saying 500 or 1,000 times a day the little ejaculation, Sacred Heart of Jesus, I placed my trust in thee. Or just the one word, Jesus. These are the most consoling devotions. Those who say the ejaculation a thousand times a day, he says, what a multitude of souls they can thus relieve. What will it not be at the end of a month, a year, 50 years? And if they do not say the ejaculations, what what an immense number of graces and favors they shall have lost. It is quite possible and even easy to say these ejaculations a thousand times a day. But if not a thousand times, let him say them 500 times or 200 times. And uh, and then he talks about the intention of... uh, offering all the masses for the glory of God and our own needs in the world of large through uh, our repetition of the name of Jesus. Holy Mass is celebrated around the clock and around the world, and every hour of the day, somewhere, the host and chalice is being raised, and our Lord becomes present, body, blood, soul, and divinity. And Father O'Sullivan reminds us we can and share, we can share in all of these. The Mass, he says, brings Jesus to our altars. At every Mass, he is once again present here on earth, as really as when he became man in his mother's womb. He also sacrifices himself on the altar as really and truly as he did on Calvary, though in a mystical, unbloody manner. Right? It's not a repetition of the sacrifice. It's the one sacrifice being made present sacramentally. The Mass is said not only for those who assist at the church, but those who wish to hear it and offer it with the priest. All we have to do is say reverently, Jesus, Jesus, with the intention of offering these Masses and participating in them. And by doing that, we have a share in all of them. Every time we say, therefore, the name of Jesus, let it be our intention, number one, to offer to God all the infinite love and merits of the Incarnation, two, to offer to God the passion and death of Jesus Christ, and three, to offer to God all the Masses being celebrated in the world for His glory and our own intentions. 
All that we have to do is say that one word, Jesus, but, he says, knowing what we are doing. Uh, He said that St. Mactilda was accustomed to offer the passion of Jesus in union with all the masses um, of the world for the souls in purgatory. And our Lord once showed her purgatory open and thousands of souls going up to heaven as the result of her little prayer. And when we say Jesus, we can offer the passion and the masses of the world either for ourselves or the souls in purgatory or for any other intention that we please. Whatever is burdening you, what, whatever is you know, the, the intention that, that is the object of, of uh, your devotion, the, of your heart, we can offer that as well. We should always offer, he says, that we should offer them for the world at large and for our own country in particular. And I can tell you right now that our country could certainly use the prayers. And that's something I'm hoping, I, I, I don't plan to spend quite so much time this year talking about the current events and more time talking about eternity. Because, you know, home is where the heart is. And that is our true home. Not, not here, but there. Okay, um, when we come back, we're going to talk about um, an article I saw on a Guideposts site. And if you're not familiar, Guidepost magazine has been around a long time. We'll talk about that a little bit. But it was called 12 Positive Habits and How to Keep Them. I'm going to talk about how positive habits used to be called virtues and how we can cultivate some important ones in the year to come. So uh, stay with us. We'll be right back with that and lots more no-nonsense Catholic right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Stay with us. Welcome back uh, to No Nonsense Catholic. I ran across an article the other day called 12 Positive Habits and How to Keep Them by Kaylin Kaupish from the Guidepost Magazine website. Now, for those of you that don't know, Guidepost Magazine's been around since 1945. It was founded, co-founded, I guess I should say, by Dr. Norman Vincent Peale, a very famous promoter of Christian optimism and the author of The Power of Positive Thinking. Guideposts is non-sectarian. That means that... uh, It features articles from Protestants as well as Catholics and even Jewish writers and others. And uh, it's still published six times a year with noted entertainers, professional athletes, or celebrities gracing the cover and sharing a personal story. Their website's one of the 100 most popular Christian sites and offers daily devotionals and inspiring articles and is unfailingly optimistic. Now, I have to admit that I am not always so optimistic. You know, even uh, Terry Barber here at Virgin Most Power, he's one of the most optimistic fellows I've ever known. And he is wont to say that the Catholic Church is not the optimist club. And that's because as Christians, we have something even more than optimism. We have the theological virtue of hope. And Dr. Peel, he was famous for encouraging the use of affirmations. Every day in every way, I am getting better and better. You know, it's very much like the habit of ejaculatory prayer that we were just talking about in the last segment or the, regarding the holy name of Jesus. It's just, a, it is true that deeds follow creeds. The law of prayer is the law of belief, as we say. Uh, St. Paul in Romans 2, 2, 12, 2, I should say, 
Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. The way you think affects the way you live, and changing the way you think can change the way you live. And that's just true. Now, while this article that I saw referred to positive habits defined as any repeated practice you do that improves your life in some way, that's a positive habit. Well, positive habits used to be called virtues. To be virtuous is to habitually live in a way that pleases God. So virtues are habits, good habits that please God, whereas vices are bad habits that offend God. And so this article provided me with a kind of a jumping off point uh, to talk about growing in virtue in this year of our Lord, 2023. And they had a list, and the first one on the list is obvious for all Christians, and you already know what I'm going to say. It's to pray, to pray every day. I mean, it hardly needs comment, you know, but, but, but pray every day, I think, may be a little too vague. I, to grow in virtue requires cultivating a habit of prayer. That means a prayer routine. You know, it doesn't have to be daily mass or the liturgy of the hours, but certainly uh, a morning offering and, and some daily devotional. Uh, you know, reading the Bible each day or, or uh, praying the Holy Rosary, the Chaplet of Divine Mercy. You can find all of those and more on right on the Virgin Most Powerful Radio app. You know, if, if you need a jump start, if you need to have those things all in one place, they're there for you, including the Holy Rosary. And so a routine of daily prayer. Uh, number two on the list, now I'm not going in the exact order that they had them, and I don't think I'm gonna, we're going to make it through 12 in the next 10 minutes. But um, spending time outside, you know, just get out of the house, get out into nature. Uh, I've, I've spoken often about how St. Bernard of Clairvaux said that everything he knew about the science of, of the Scripture, he learned in the woods and the fields, that the trees and the stones were his only teachers. In other words, that his greatest insights came from contemplating God's Word, not just in solitude, but in nature, in, in God's creation. So take a walk or, or uh, do what I do and do your daily devotional out in the backyard, weather permitting. You know, just get out, get out in, in the fresh air. Uh, number three here is to consider making a habit of journaling. And I don't journal, although I do write <laughs> pretty much every day. And I'm typically writing about my opinions and my thoughts. So maybe I actually kind of do journal. Um, but I, I, I've spoken often about the need to get a word out regarding the, the readings at Mass. Right to, to find something that speaks to you and to, and to, you know, hold on to it, take ownership of it, you know, when, when you're going or when you're reading the scriptures. Look for that one thing that jumps out at you and that you can apply to your life. But, you know, lots of folks, uh, uh, famously Matthew Kelly, suggests that you should write those things down. Uh, and, and spiritual and mental health advocates both encourage journaling as an effective way to deal with anxiety and stress. Uh, to write down things that are causing you worry so that you can get them out and, and, and s stop avoiding them, you know, and face them. Uh, it can be surprising how much you know, putting your worries and anxieties on paper can make them more manageable. And, and if you're looking to make journaling a virtue, consider starting a, a journal of gratitude, the things that you're, that you're thankful for. And, you know, a journal of your personal spiritual insights, the things that bring you joy. That can be a wonderful resource for you to encourage your growth in virtue, something you can go back to again and again. That's, that's yours because it's, you know, it's, they're your insights and your life. Uh, number four, uh, something to cultivate is to sing. You know, uh, people don't sing 
so much anymore, you know, the way they used to. I mean, once upon a time, you, know, you think back to the Middle Ages, a couple of travelers fall in together along the road. It wouldn't be long before they were singing. Um, well into the last century, family sing-alongs were a popular form of entertainment, you know, as opposed to the family all sitting in the living room with the TV going, but they're all looking at their own smartphone. <laughs> you know, chances are you're not going to be gathering around the old p- player piano anytime soon. But singing can relieve stress and can improve your mood. You know, uh, the, the liturgy of the hours includes daily hymnody. Now, I pray the hours, uh, the, you know, the morning office early before the rest of the household is up. And I don't think they or my neighbors would appreciate waking up to me, you know, belting out all creatures of our God and King or, or whatever. But you can pick a time in the day when you can belt out your favorite song. You know, maybe when you're driving in the car or, you know, in the shower or whatever. Point is, it can uh, release stress and be uplifting. And it's like Paul says in Ephesians, be filled with the Spirit as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with one another. Sing and chant to the Lord in your hearts, giving thanks to God the Father at all times and for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus. Another thing, uh, a verge to grow in virtue, put your phone down. You know, especially at nighttime. Uh, we, we talked this year about doom scrolling. Uh, people are saying, well, I'll just take a look at my phone here before I go to bed. And then at three in the morning, they're still scrolling through stuff. You know, um, Archibald Hart. Dr. Archibald Hart did a lot of research in, in the early part of the century about how, um, about, you know, about stress because it's a killer. And he talked about how we've broken up the rhythm of our life, not only through the use of artificial lights and so forth that, that break up the, the light and dark rhythm of, of the day, but especially the screens and, and looking at screens. That's one of the reasons that, uh, you know, he advocates turn off all the technology for an hour or so before you go to sleep. And let your bodies, you know, get into the rhythm. Um, also, you can, if you're going to read, read a book. So you're not staring at that screen. You know, it's, reading a book has been a time-honored way of, uh, you know, preparing for sleep for since days immemorial. Especially if you're reading something that's uh, soothing or comforting. You know, uh, readings uh, from the spiritual writers or from the Holy Bible even. Just not the exciting parts. <laughs> uh, count your blessings. In the words of the great theologian Irving Berlin, when you're worried and cannot sleep, just count your blessings instead of sheep, and you'll fall asleep counting your blessings. Okay, I apologize for uh, my rendition, but how many times did your, your mom and dad or your grandparents tell you to count your blessings? Well, you know what? They were on to something. Instead of counting your blessings to stop yourself from complaining, you can make it a positive habit. Make a list of the blessings, you know, in the, the journal of yours and, and, and add to it as your blessings increase. Uh, also, if you're not going to, if you're going to turn the screen off, you can still, you know, use the technology by listening to something calming. Again, we have a number of smartphone apps now that are especially for that purpose. And um, the Amen app that I'm a part of. I've, I contributed not only the Bible in a year, but a number of uh, prayers and that sort of thing. Uh, and they also have what, what they call sleep stories that are intended to help you to uh, fall asleep. Also, there's something they call habit stacking. And I think that this is, this is a good thing. Um, I had a good friend, God rest his soul, Father Shane Tharp. And he was a heavyset guy, had been his whole life, came from a, a you know family of heavyset people. And he lost something over 100 pounds. 
And it was quite remarkable. And I remember uh, he had me out to his parish in Oklahoma to give some talks. And, and he had lost all this weight. And, and we had gone, gone out to eat. And I noticed he would drink water with a little lemon in it. And, and that's pretty much it, you know, maybe a cup of coffee. And, and I'm like, um, and I, of course, was entirely addicted to Diet Coke. And so was he. And in fact, that's how we met. <laughs> it was at a conference. We were both looking for Diet Coke. And, uh, and I said, you know, Father, it, it, I, it, it doesn't have any calories in it. You know, I mean, I know that there's caffeine, but you're still drinking coffee. So, you know, why are, why are you avoiding Diet Coke? Is there something I should know? And he said, no, I'm not really avoiding Diet Coke. I'm uh, avoiding Diet Coke's friend, Skittles. Because apparently that was one of his favorite snacks. That was a trigger for him. That at nighttime, when he was watching television or whatever, he would drink Diet Coke and eat a bag of Skittles. And so the two things were connected in his mind. So to help him break the Skittles habit, he broke the Diet Coke habit. And this is like the reverse (laughs) of what they call habit stacking, where you take some habit that you already have and then add another one to it. So, you know, you would say, think of it this way. When I do X, whatever your existing habit is, I will also do Y, this new habit. Um, I remember years ago, a a friend of ours, a friend of my wife's, uh, Terry Lamonto. Hey, Terry, if you're listening, uh, this one's for you. Uh, she had encountered this wonderful prayer. We, uh, Father O'Sullivan's talking about repeating a prayer many times in a day and to gain the indulgence and to help the souls in purgatory. And she'd uh, discovered the St. Gertrude prayer, pardon me, the St. Gertrude prayer, which is a prayer, you know, uh, to release souls from purgatory. And so she wanted to say it regularly. And what she did was printed it out on a little card, put it in the, in the bathroom mirror, and then when she went to brush her teeth, she would pray that prayer. Because you know you're going to brush your teeth. You're not going to stop doing that. So you add this other thing to it. Uh, habit stacking, they call it. Anyway, I, I mentioned uh, at the be, you know, earlier in the program that Thomas Akempis said about uh, growing in virtue, about making resolutions. He said, if we were to root out one vice a year, we would soon be perfect.